0: This is Authors in Focus. Welcome to the Authors in Focus podcast. I am absolutely ecstatic about our guest today. He is a prolific, multi-best-selling author of horror and thrillers, and one of the, uh, Well, one of the biggest authors out there, and I'm ecstatic to have this opportunity. We're talking today to Mr. Dean Kuntz. (music) Dean, I'm so happy to be able to sit down and talk to you.
1: Well, thanks for having me there.
0: I've been a fan for uh, many years. Give you a little bit of background. My first exposure to your work was from attempting to read Watchers, The Bad Place, and Cold Fire, probably when I was way too young to be reading them, after seeing the beautiful hardback copies uh, in the early 90s on my mom's bookshelf. You've written stories for a long time, and you're such a prolific author. When did you get the writing bug that made you realize this was it? You were going to write for a living. And give us a little bit of the journey that led to your first published novel.
1: Well, I was—I uh, actually started writing stories when I was eight years old, and uh, I tried to peddle them to relatives for a nickel, uh, and they bought a number of them until they formed a, a resistance group and refused to buy anymore. And we didn't have books in our house, so it's strange to me that I went that way. It took me years to figure out why that happened, but uh, I was doing it then. And then, as I, by the time I was 12. I'd read all the books in the town library that was in this section. They allowed children to go into it. and The librarian said, well, normally we don't let you go into the adult section till you're 16, but I think in your case, I'll let you go in there. So I started reading in the adult section and mainly science fiction because that's what I love most from the young adult section, which was the Heinlein uh, juveniles, which I found uh, fascinating. And then I, I didn't really ever think about it as a career until I was in college I and mean, in my late in my junior year I discovered a professor of mine had submitted a story to an Atlantic monthly competition for uh college writers college age writers and uh, that it had won a prize first prize the name on the dark college had ever gotten in that contest and the first thing it did was from that moment on, I didn't have to work. I got all A's in my English classes, whether I earned them or not. And I thought that was pretty cool. That was a benefit of being a writer. And there was no money with the prize, but there was a little certificate of award and that kind of thing. But I turned around and sold the story to a magazine for $50 dollars. And in those days, you could buy paperbacks for 45, 50 cents, 60 cents. So 50 dollars bought a lot of paperbacks. And that was when I started thinking, hmm, if they somebody actually pays you for this, uh, then maybe it's a way to earn a living. But then I still taught school for a year and a half, uh, uh, but I was selling short stories during that time, and uh, and then in the summer between two years of teaching, I sold the first uh, novel-length work, and I just never stopped since. It's hard work, especially if you're always trying to press yourself further than you've achieved before. But it's also a uh, play. And how many of us get to do for a living what we find to be play, even if it's hard work? So that's kind of a long explanation of how I got there. Uh, it, was, uh, it was throughout my youth and power of books to take me out of an unhappy childhood that I think is what motivated me.
0: Well, and the rest is history. That's an amazing story.
1: So many of your books
0: feature very dark and often horrific themes. But something I've noticed is they also emphasize an underlying theme of hope, kindness and compassion. So where does that darkness and that pathos that's inspired so much of your writing come from? Uh, and why the strong dichotomy between the depravity and then the hope and
1: resilience themes? It's, uh, you know, you don't realize when you're writing, at least I didn't, I think a lot of people don't. There's things you intend to do uh, when you're working on a book story, uh, there are themes you want to approach, and then there are things that you do simply because they grow out of what you think you know about the world, or what you think the world is, or what your personal philosophy of existence is. And I've always felt, I think as long back as I can remember, even in high school, That the world is a very dark place, uh, but there is hope in it. Uh, And where that hope comes from is something I unconsciously have explored for a long time in the novels. Uh, Somebody, an editor once said to me, and not terrible many years ago, uh, you write so many different kinds of stories. You're never repeating things. And yet in almost everything you write, there is this element of characters who for whatever reason have no family and in encountering one another and uh, finding affection and kindness among each other, they form families. And I said to her, Oh no, I don't do that very often. And then I looked at it and my God, yes, it's there in almost everything. And it comes out of the fact that I think as a child, it was a very dark household that I my father was a violent alcoholic my mother was a great person, but often quite sickly hospitalized. And we never knew if we had a roof over our head from day to day. My father was frequently uh, threatening suicide, but the way he would do it would be to say, it's just too hard. My life is too hard. None of us are ever going to get what we need. And so we all might as well go out together. And I always thought he might make good on that. Uh, He had two brothers who committed suicide so it was within his family so in that darkness I was nevertheless a happy kid in fact I had a man who was uh, something of a I guess she was bipolar as in those days we might have said schizophrenic or whatever she was more bipolar than anything she went through severe mood changes and she would find me reading a book and, and obviously happy or riding a bike going around town and Uh, she would say to me, you're too happy for your own good. It was the thing she said, uh, which I found very strange until I was old enough to realize what she meant. Given the family I was in and prospects of coming out of that family to any kind of good life, I shouldn't have been happy. But I always was, I always found things in life that you could seize upon that you enjoy and made the darkness go away for a time. And I think that attitude is still in the work. It's, uh, I've got that dark world, which is our world, if you're open and aware of it and what awfulness it contains, it is a fallen world. And yet there is great hope in that there is reason to have faith in the prospects of humanity. And uh, and I, I always want to have that within books. If I get one thing more than any other, that readers write me about it is probably that that the books give them hope no matter how dark the books get
0: it's always something that i've really enjoyed about your work especially a lot of your more recent work which is going to lead me to this question which is sort of an offshoot of the last one they say uh, like a common piece of writing advice is to write what you know and because of that obviously the practice can often be rather personal how much of yourself, though, and your own traits and those of the people in your personal life make it into your characters? And if this is a tactic you employ in your
1: writing, what are some of, some of the best examples you can think of? It's, uh, my wife says that when I, she, I, she's my first reader. And when the, nobody sees anything until I, I've done what I think is a final draft. And then I give it to her. That is to my agents and editor, but she usually has it read right first. Uh, And she said, has said to me a number of times, every time I'm reading the new book, I recognize things that happen in in our life or observations (laughs) we make that end up coming out of these characters. And I often do that, I think, almost unconsciously, because sometimes uh, I'm surprised when she points it out. I'm a people person. I like people. It's it's an odd thing when you're doing a job that keeps you in a room alone, most of life and then to also be drawn to people but I I am a people person but uh, I've I've got a good eye for character things Uh, I think because I grew up being something of an introvert shy and watching people more than participating and as a consequence that helped me as a writer as I grew up with that characteristic and when we're wherever we are, we go out to dinner or anywhere. I find watching people still to be a fascinating thing. And you see things that surprise you and startle you, and they end up in the stories. It's, uh, I can't off the top of my head tell you one, but one of the reasons I wrote the two Chris Snow books and they tended to do a third was. We lived in Newport Beach and various places we went to eat and so forth. were down on the harbor at that time. And we were sort of there right in the heart of all this uh, surfer culture. And it became absolutely fascinating to me. And uh, I sort of immersed myself in it. Yeah, the next thing I knew, I had two novels where the characters were suffers, and it was because of watching and thinking and being around that. So everything in your life becomes material. It's it's kind of a, sometimes you think it's a little bit cynical, but in the other time that is how you get what you write about. Now, one thing you said, write what you know. Some young writers take that to mean they can't write about something that they haven't experienced well, if that were the case, much of what's been written would never have been written. And uh, what it means, what I take, right what you know the mean, when it's used intelligently, is you can learn about anything. So if you you want to write a novel set in the surfer culture, then learn about it. Uh, if you want to write a novel about somebody like Jane Clock, who was a an FBI agent and has all that training and is a particularly action-oriented person, then find out what she needs to know. You have to learn what she knows. Uh, but that can be done when it is something you know. So young writers can get lost in the or misdirected by that. There's a great novel I keep re- recommending by William Goldman, the screenwriter, who was also a fine novelist. And wrote a novel called The Color of Light. And the very theme of that, color is the, uh, that novel is the great danger of taking too seriously the advice you get in college creative writing classes. And the lead character is somebody who cannot write about anything unless it happened to him. And this leads him into a disastrous life. And it's a very darkly funny novel. Uh, and I, I recommend it to anybody who is a writer who wants to be.
0: Sounds amazing. Definitely something that I'm going to check out. And uh, keeping with the personal touch of writing, I know how much you adore Golden Retrievers. Uh, beginning with Watchers and way beyond uh, even the darkest evening of the year, you featured some really amazing and intelligent Golden. Now, I'll admit, I just got a French Bulldog, the first dog that I've ever owned. I've never really considered myself a dog person, but the dog completely changed my life and I can't imagine my life without him now. What is it about Golden Retrievers that has enamored you and fascinated you and inspired you to make them such a strong focus of your writing?
1: Well, it's interesting. When I wrote Watchers, I had never had a dog. Uh, We very briefly, like a week or two at a time, had two dogs. And when I was a child, uh, those are other stories. But I had always admired Goldens. And then as time passed and we got involved with Canine Companions for Independence, which produces assistance dogs to people with severe disabilities, or uh, and now for children with autism. Uh, and uh, these dogs, it was fascinating how they utterly changed the lives of people with disabilities and mainstream them as they might not have been able to do on their own because of all the tasks these dogs can do and the confidence they provide. We got our all three of our dogs from Canine Companions, and they were dogs that. Well, two of them were dogs that failed out of the uh, educational process, two years of uh, training. Uh, they don't say it failed out anymore. They say it had a career change. We don't want to trouble the dog with that label. So our first dog had been in service, but then came out of service when she had elbow surgery, and uh, we uh, gave her a home. And just as you said with your French bulldog, that, that dog changed our lives, utterly changed our lives, and in you know, every way for the better. And I even wrote a book about it because I felt it was such an amazing experience. And now dogs are centric to our lives. And Goldens in particular, I have a fascination for because all of us have had Goldens anytime, to anybody comes up to you in a restaurant and it's, uh, that's had a golden. You end up in a con and we eat out. We take our dog everywhere and eat on patios. And she's better behaved than I am, which everyone will attest to. And somebody who's had a golden will come up to us. And uh, you end up in conversations. And it always begins with, aren't they the best? And there's <laughs> something about the breed. They're enormously affectionate. They're highly intelligent. They're always listed as one of the three most intelligent breeds. But they, it's the affection factor. They just get into your heart and they don't let go. And it's, it's a wonderful experience. Now, as you said, once they're in your life, it's almost impossible to think about living without it because I have more laughs every day because of that dog than because of anything else. Uh, she's, she just, uh, you know, they're innocent souls. And, uh, uh, it's my attorney who, I entertainment law attorney it's a golden guy and he uh, he said it's like having perpetual four-year-old you know they're not old enough to be bratty yet <laughs> and they're they're uh, young enough to be innocent and it's that permanent innocence and joy in life that makes them fascinating to be around
0: i totally get what you're saying because i have a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old and the dog is the one that is like you said Uh, And even the relationship the children have with the dog, it's like this perpetual, hilarious, always laughing, always brightening up your day kind of energy. Absolutely. I'm going to completely shift gears because I'd like to talk a little bit about some of your series work, some of the, the ongoing series, which have been some of my favorites that I've just devoured over the years. One of my favorites definitely being your Frankenstein series. It often comes up in reading circles as a must-read starting point when people ask where they should begin with your work. What is it about Mary Shelley's classic that compelled you to give it such a unique spin casting Victor Frankenstein as evil and the monster as a sympathetic hero?
1: Some film producers came to me through my agent and they said we want to do a TV series with you. And they had a fixed idea of what that was going to be. They said, we want you to reimagine Dracula in some rather extravagant way. I said, everybody's reimagined Dracula every three or four years. Uh, The vampire novel is is in constant evolution. I don't want to do what everybody else has been doing. So I suggested, why not Frankenstein? And within Frankenstein is, when you, you think about it, that while the monster is horrific in the novel. He's also pathetic, and Victor Frankenstein is a, sort of a narcissist. <laughs> and uh, I thought, why not get to that level of the characters and and bring it to the fore? Let's make the monster has lived long enough to become humanized, and Victor has managed to extend his life, and the worst aspects of Victor have now become Victor, and there is no particularly good aspect to him anymore. When I started with that, uh, I wrote a screenplay. It was well, a one hour episode yeah. and uh, we placed it at a network, at a cable network. And uh, they wanted me to expand it into a two hour script, which I did. And we went for a director and a show director was in negotiations when the head of the agency, Arian Benwell, sent the script to Martin Scorsese, who was looking for something to direct for TV. In the fictional realm, uh, he had done uh, some uh, documentaries for TV, but nothing in the fictional area. And he loved the script and said, I want to do this. And then he found that they already were talking to a young director. And he said, I won't take work away from the young director, but I'd like to be on this as a producer. And he was on a, through every meeting while he was doing Gang in New York. So he was, proved to be a very sweet guy. And then they turned the whole series upside down on me. They made it into a misogynistic mess. It was, it, the whole thing was just awful where it ended, And I had to get my name taken off. And I was so upset about that. But I said, okay, now I got to write a novel to show what this could have been like. And that novel turned into five novels, uh, into a whole series. And I had so much fun writing to mix the amount of humor that's in them with the amount of absolute really terrifying horror elements that are in it and then to place it within a police procedural sort of thing with the two cops as your main characters and and introduce a kind of romantic element between them that is unlike most romantic elements in those uh, kind of novels or movies was just so many interesting mix of things that I think I could have gone on writing those for a long time but uh, uh, series if they go on too long usually gets stale so and i think i'm going to make the fifth one the final and it's uh, i know when it first was started to be published people would write me and say i love what you do but i'm not going to read these because you know i Frankenstein like that uh, and i thought well no it's not what you think it is uh, and yet it's I wouldn't try to tread on Mary Shelley by doing something like she did because nobody can do that. She was brilliant. And that book is unlike anything else. Uh, so to take her concept then and do something with it, it was necessary to totally upend it, do it so differently. It's still an homage, but it's a, it's a kind of mashup. And so people would say, well, I'm not going to read these because I don't like the whole Frankenstein thing. It's so tired. And then over the years, it's been surprising to me that people keep finding this and keep reading it. And people who told me they would never read it, I come back and say, you know, I actually picked up one and now I've read all five. So that's something that's wonderful when you're a writer, uh, that uh, when you win over even sometimes those who think this is the last thing. I'll
0: Right. Well, I had read a lot of your work, like I said, but it was Frankenstein that Frankenstein and Odd Thomas that made me a, a completist and just go and and pick up everything and have like an entire massive shelf devoted to your work. So I will say that I would imagine that it's, it's probably been uh, an intro point to a lot of new readers. Are you, uh, have you been paying attention to the recent trend of uh, villains getting backstories? There's a lot of them in Hollywood where they're showing like a different side of the villain or they're doing these kind of like turning stories
1: upside down. Have you been paying attention to any of those? I'm aware of it, but I can't say that I particularly watched any of it's uh, I've I've always tried to flesh out the villains. And I I give depending on the book, I give some significant backstories. I always have this thing about villains that I've been well aware of. It's not the same thing you're talking about, but I never want the villain to be so appealing that. Evil becomes appealing in the eye of any reader. So I've always handled that as best I could in most books by making the villain something of a fool, uh, because choosing evil is foolish. It works for a short period, uh, but it never works for a lifetime, and uh, or rarely ever does. And as a consequence, a character like Junior Kane in from the corner of his eye is as funny unintentionally funny he doesn't know he's funny but he is darkly funny and therefore uh not glamorous i don't want an evil character to be glamorous or to be overly sympathetic because uh if he becomes overly sympathetic leads to the proposition that there is no such thing as real evil and i think that's a fallacy uh i think if you are paying attention to the world there is real evil in, in a lot of real evil and it's a choice that people make so I never want to glamorize that but I do find myself giving backstories to uh, I'm working on a book now where uh, the guy in pursuit of my lead character is uh, is quite a quite a uh, quite a handful and I wanted to know exactly when this started with Uh, and I ended up finding out it started when he was seven years old so there are these little moments where I get things in the book about his past for a couple of pages and they've had me kind of laughing out loud because they're so dark.
0: Right I'm gonna um, move on to Odd Thomas because we mentioned it I mentioned it briefly Uh, it worked for me on so many levels from the perfect beautiful visual descriptions the intense emotion and especially the self-deprecating humor which is something I've noticed has found its way more and more into your later books. Was there a specific point that humor became more of an interest to you, or was it just sort of part of your natural evolution as a writer?
1: When I left science fiction, I wrote a few little things in science fiction that were numerous stories. And when I moved on, because I realized as much as I love that field as a reader, I was never going to be able to write in it to the level I wanted so I moved into other things. One of them was an early comic novel was published. It got good reviews. It didn't sell. And my agent at that time, I mean, it's a it's publisher, but not to a lot of public, the public. And my agent at that time said, well, that's because no matter how well written they are or how well-reviewed comic novels don't sell. And I said, hmm, why didn't somebody tell me that before I spent a year writing on it? Um, And so I kind of drifted away from that for a period of time. But then, eventually, I came to including little bits of humor and things. And certainly, I did so beginning more obviously in Watchers. There were more humorous moments with the dog. And one of the big problems I had with the publisher of Lightning was there was too much humor in it. or And the publisher really felt there should be no humor at all. That you can't be laughing with a character and then feel they're in jeopardy. And I felt that was completely wrong headed. That's how we all deal with life, uh, with the vicissitudes of life. We turn to humor and, uh, and take solace in seeing the humor in even dark moments. So if a character in a novel does that, it seems to me it makes him more human and therefore more relatable and therefore we care about him or her more than we otherwise would, but I discovered this was a pretty widespread spread prejudice in publishing because uh, I kept getting resistance to it for I guess you would say decades uh, and when i when I delivered the first Ho Thomas book, my publisher always was one of the first uh, two people to come to me uh, reading it. Usually read it as least as fast as my editor did. And in the case of Odd Thomas, so hated it that he wouldn't talk to me about it at all. I, I've never known why except that what the editor sort of told me. Uh, the whole character just didn't appeal to them. The eunuch thought was, wasn't, wouldn't never work. That, uh, that the humility of the character, which is the essence of Odd Thomas, uh, And I knew that from the very first book, that he's on a journey to absolute humility. I didn't know how I'd write about that as I'd never experienced it. But I knew that that's where he was going and that it was going to be a kind of fascinating journey. And then when I had this terrible reaction, I was disturbed. I thought, I'm going to have to change publishers. And I guess that became very apparent because I was under this pressure, write something really scary. Uh, So I did and it was the last book under contract. And But in the meantime, Thomas went out in advanced proofs to bookstores, to reviewers. Bookstores were ordering higher numbers than they ordered things before. Uh, the early reviews were all positive. I think they had a 100 some reviews and only two negative on that book. And, uh, and that publisher was wise enough to say, I guess I don't get it. But he said, look, OK, you can write more about this character, but between every Thomas, I want at least one standalone novel that doesn't have him in it. And uh, I agree with that. You should have to be flexible with this. And uh, and it was that's how odd sort of uh, evolved. Uh, it was with resistance in the business, uh, not from the public, who embraced him instantly. Uh, and, uh, it was one of the most rewarding, uh, periods in my career was every time I could turn to a new autonomous, I knew I was going to be having a lot of fun at the keyboard. Uh, and I never know what he's going to say, what he's going to think, how he's going to get. It. I don't ponder it in an autonomous novel. He just does. And, uh, when he, when he, uh, comes up with a comment or an observation, I sometimes will stop and go, would he say that? Would he do that? And I, then I go, yes, of course he would. That's that's who he is. So that, that was that was one of those gifts that you, you wonder as a writer, where did this come from? Where did this character come from? You can't, sometimes you can follow a book back to its inspiration, and other times you simply can't. It just comes to you. Uh, and that one came to me, Altavis came to me, it line while I was working on the face, I've said this before, I, it came in my head it had nothing to do with the face, it was, my name is Odd Thomas I lead an unusual life, and just the name Odd Thomas I found curious, and I wrote the whole first, I paused in the face, and turned to a, I never write by hand but I wrote the whole first chapter of that, by hand, in a legal tablet, in space if I think a day, and Then I went on with the face. And when I finished the face, I went back to that because I couldn't stop thinking about it. But I assumed when I looked at that chapter, it would be terrible uh, because i never had the experience of coming to me that way. And when I looked at it, I think it ended up with very, maybe a tension, small changes, and was the first chapter of the book. And it was just, where did that come from? It's mysterious. And it's one of the great things about, A writing career when that happens
0: yeah that is amazing and i have
1: heard you uh mention that
0: before one of the things that really struck me in the entire odd thomas series specifically the first novel because it just blew my mind and nothing was ever the same after i read it was the uh the relationship between stormy and odd such a beautiful powerful story it made me uh want to ask you this do you believe in
1: the concept of soulmates I must. I've been married now 55 years to the same woman. <laughs> and we met when I was a senior and she was a junior in high school. Uh, and and that's been uh, uh, it's led me to believe in a lot of things in life. I, I have a novel coming out. that's about synchronicity. Uh, amazing coincidences, which are not so amazing when you actually start reading about synchronicity. They happen all the time in our lives, but we don't think of them uh, quite as coincidences unless we sit down and analyze them and realize how strange it is that this person who never knew of this element and this element all came together so that you were in this place and this time and this thing happened that forms your life uh, dramatically from that moment alone. Uh, so soulmates would be another way of saying that. Uh, there is synchronicity in, in the universe there. Things happen for mysterious reasons. Uh, it's why is this observation of life that I think gives a rise to almost all faiths, uh, faith forms, uh, is understanding that there's a big element of strangeness in life. And, uh, and it's very hard to see it as just the grinding of nature's machine. Uh, That there's something else at work, and uh, so so make sure that is that is definitely could be a part of that kind of universe.
0: My wife and I could really relate to the story, being that we met. I was we met when she was in her first year of college, and I was in my second year of college. We were literally like smitten by each other almost instantly, and we've now been together 25 years. And I've only spent like maybe five days away from her in, in the 25 years. So. That was obviously something that I wanted to ask you because it did resonate so strongly with both of us when we read the novel. It's,
1: so, you know, some people I've had people say to me, How do you handle it? to, to do you work. Shirley works as much as I do. She takes care of all the finances, uh, uh, does payroll for all employees, and, and uh, takes care of everything I can't yet because I, I have very little talent, skills, or ability. And in fact, only the one that I've managed to exploit. Uh, and uh, she has a background in accounting and, uh, and is quite sharp on a number of fronts. So she's, our offices are, well, in previous house and most houses we've lived in, were side by side and we're together almost all day uh, in and out of each other's office. And I've had people say, I don't know how you could live that way. Uh, don't you get on each other's nerves? <laughs> I think no, but it, it tells me something maybe about your marriage if you say that, because uh, it's it's like we don't see each other enough uh, because I'm working, she's working. And the fact that we're simply together all day it doesn't mean that's all day uh, in the kind of togetherness we prefer. Uh, but that's a great thing about a relationship, <clears throat> that it can last so long and there's always something new in each other. Uh, in our case, we both have a wacky sense of humor and we laugh at the same things. And uh, I think that's been one of the big issues that kept us so happy together.
0: That's amazing. That's uh, really inspiring to hear. Uh, I'm going to put you to a little bit of a challenge. Uh, I have to ask this. And I know this might be like, you know, picking a favorite child. But if you could say which one of your massive list of works you're the absolute most proud of hate to use the word magnum opus it's got been made fun of so many times and i'm not going to go that route but if there's a book that you've written that you just even now you'll look at it and be like this is it this is the one that i'm the most proud of what would it be
1: i think that is a question i find almost impossible to answer i can kind of boil it down uh one of the reasons is i've written so many different kind of things a book like intensity is absolutely nothing like uh, a book like life expectancy, uh, and and yet they would end up in my top ten favorites of things. And if I said either one of them, and people said, "Okay, that's the one I'll read," they would never understand that there's a there's a book like intensity in this, and they might not love life expectancy, uh, which is a, a suspenseful and scary book but it's also a comedy almost a screwball comedy uh so i would i would not play the game you want me to play i'll say among my favorites are autonomous intensity life expectancy from the corner his uh i'm in the middle of a not in the middle almost at the end of a book that's really i'm, I'm not going to know till i go back after it's completely done read it but I think they am up in the top 10. I turned in a book called The House at the End of the World that I like quite a lot. And let me see, uh, there, there's others. Uh, Jane Hawk, yes, my assistant's saying Jane Hawk. Along the whole Jane Hawk series into one massive novel, and counted as one. I think what novels most matter to me are the novels in which the characters have stayed with me so clearly. And the novels I've just mentioned are very character and the characters are each one I think each of the leads within those novels are unique and uh, and its character I've always sort of felt drives best story uh, you got to have a, a good storyline it has to have tension uh, it has to have color it has to have all of the other things it has to have some sort of thematic structure but If the character doesn't work, nothing else ever works quite like it ought to. So there is just a number I I like of things I've done uh, that I I think are of sort of equal quality, but very different kind of books. Watchers would certainly be one of those. Um, And uh, if I don't stop, I'll name another 10.
0: (laughs) Now, fair enough. You actually mentioned a few that I would rank among my favorites to Life Expectancy. One that I have always said, look, if you have read the Odd Thomas series, you would probably dig this book. And I've I've recommended it to a lot of people. Definitely one of my favorites. So because you mentioned characters and the characters that have stuck with you the longest, I'm going to put you on the spot again. I apologize. I but as you, <laughs> you know what's coming, I'm, I'm sure you know what's coming. Uh, as you might know, uh, you have a number of hardcore Christopher Snow fans uh, that are me being one of them obviously clamoring to know if you ever plan on returning to his world someday you had mentioned and i know that there had been a plan to do a third um so i'll ask the inevitable but i'm also going to take it a step further and ask you if you have any plans to return to the worlds of any of your other
1: longer running character based series well first of all the chris no that was supposed to be third this was another instance of the publisher not liking the second Chris Snow book uh, sees the Night, he wanted massive changes at the end. And I I just wasn't going to do it. And I made a few tiny changes that I thought would answer some questions. But the dislike of the book was so, again, it's because of the humor, uh, partly because of the humor. And the dislike of the book by publisher, I had left after three books at my own election because I loved Sonny Mehta, who was head of it at the time, but there was the way the system worked there did not appeal to me, and uh, I had left there after three books and went to bantam, and the first two books were the first two Krishna books, and the third was supposed to be the third. But when I got such resistance to the second, I decided if I deliver the third, it's going to be the end of this relationship. So I need to do a couple more books before I get back to the Krisna. And I did, except those books were quite long. False memory from the corner of his eye, one door away from heaven, the face. <laughs> and then pretty soon, I was quite a distance from the Chris Snow world. I still have a partial of the, uh, Ride the Storm, which was the third book. And then the strange thing happened that uh, you know, as time passed, publisher left and the other publisher came on. That publisher didn't want to go back to Chris Snow. Eventually, I left Random House. And now the first two Chris Snow books are stuck on, under that Random House Phantom imprint. So if I were to finish the third, it's an orphan book. I Last year, I think it was last year, I did suddenly realize that I could approach the third Chris Snow as if it were the first book anybody's ever read by Chris Snow. And I, I've been brooding about how to do that and that it could stand entirely on its own. I, and I might still approach it, uh, but the you know the publisher I left would have no interest in it, and I would have no interest in going back there, and they would have no interest in letting me buy back the first two Chris notes. So it's all become stuck in that kind of publishing quagmire. But I have to say, I, I enjoyed writing those characters, and they really resonated to me. And I guess the only reason that don't automatically put those two books in my top 10 is because I always feel embarrassed that I didn't do the third. And it's sort of the first two are standalones, but they always leave you with a question at the end that you want to have answered. And I never got the full answer about Chris mother and and what biggest thing was going on at the Fort Wyvern, uh, which was a place I'd love to go back to. So I don't know. We'll see. I've always said that if any day of that uh, there was a film deal on that, maybe that would break open the locks and I'd be able to do the third one. But I don't rule it out. I just uh, beg forgiveness.
0: Well, I'm sure a lot of people uh, listening will be happy to know that there is a chance. So, I'm going to shift into completely different gear and break away from your writing for a minute. Because, as an author that engages in so many intense hours of writing and exploring such dark places as we've discussed, what does Dean Coombs do, though, to escape from those places? What do you enjoy doing in your downtime?
1: Lately, I haven't had much downtime. I've been uh, revitalized by the publishing change I made, I'm working with a team now that's very enthusiastic. And creative and producing books that are I'm a collector of books and so I, I got depressed about how bad the quality of some products out of New York publishing have become spine split when the book is new and, and a lot of details that used to be included are gone and Thomas Mercer was binding beautifully doing lovely end papers and all the nice little details of books that I, I have lost been lost in a lot of publishing. So collecting books, uh, seeing friends, uh, spending time with my, my wife and dog. They used to take a long walk. I've been more productive than ever. i said in the newsletter, gee, I'm surprised to have reached the age of 205 and still be writing more and happily than ever. Um, so I think a part of me knows I am not going to be 205. So when the ideas are still coming, this strong uh, at the house of the end of the world is uh, something I had great pleasure writing as I did the other Emily and the other things. I've There's so much fun in it. That, that becomes to a degree relaxation, but I'm not a big traveler. I'm a collector of various things. I have a collection of uh, Bakelite radios from the 1920s and thirties, which sounds pretty bizarre. But when you go back and look at, uh, the radios, as they made them in those days, they were little works of art. Bakelite was one of the first plastics, and it was very colorful, all kinds of colors. And, and there were all these art deco designs in the radios. And uh, I have shelves of them that uh, stand there like little works of art. Uh, just gives me pleasure to find them and to, to look at them. And I'm very interested in art, and my wife is too. Uh, there's various things we Collect the Meiji period Japanese art is just phenomenal, and gives me great pleasure just to find wonderful things like that. Uh, it's a quiet life basically. I'm not into parties. Uh, I I, did, I lived in Vegas for a year, and I have no desire to go back there. <laughs> That's sort of it. It's adult life. It's not glamorous, uh, but glamour is oversold as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I, uh, I look for the simpler things in life uh, outside of the art, which is always expensive. If it's good. Or it's sometimes expensive when it's execrable, but it's, uh, that's, uh, never if it's great is it cheap. But everything else is interesting and it is nothing. that costs a fortune. It's just small things. Right.
0: No, I, uh, I can entirely relate and feel a similar sentiment. Actually, the last couple of years, Unfortunately, with the world kind of blown up to pandemic proportions, naturally, there's been a lot of suffering. But for me personally, one of the things that the time brought me was a little bit more of that. It made me realize how easy it is to be consumed by by what's out there and by travel and by going to eat at restaurants. And part of what the slower pace of life did was it allowed me to connect a lot more with family and and with nature uh and it's it's made me definitely a little bit more of a minimalist in how i live my life
1: so, well it's it's uh jerry works as much as i do and she she's a good cook she hates to cook so we eat out a lot uh but uh, we, we uh they we like to go to with some of the, the same place over and over again and our prime criteria outside of is the food edible, is can we take the dog and like, right Uh, so she always goes with us when we eat out and we take a long time for dinner uh, we share the the, the day our average sitting at the table for dinner is two hours i would say Uh, so that that's a key part of the day just to uh, be able to talk about what's going on in the world going on in our lives together
0: definitely now you have a relatively new novel uh came out in late january called quicksilver which is fantastic i'm Pretty sure it would appeal to anyone that loves your first-person character-based books. Can you tell us a little bit about it and what makes it such a great read and why people
1: should be grabbing it? Well, uh, I was in the mood to write The Other Emily. is a very dark novel, and uh, I was in the mood to write something that had a large comic element in it, and that tends to have to come out of the character. So Queen Quicksilver, who is this Character, it came to me when I just, is that sometimes images come into your head and you don't know where they came from. And and I had this image of a lonely desert highway and sitting in the middle of it was uh, right in the center of traffic was a a little thatched plastic bassinet, a three day old baby in it. And I thought, huh, well, that's interesting. Uh, There's there's a story here. Who is this child and whatnot? but, of course, it can't be a story from a baby's point of view. I'm not quite sure how i don't handle that. So uh, who, who is he? And then I realized, oh, the story is his from his point of view, but not until he's 19. And he starts the book by telling you how he was found on the highway and ended up in an orphanage and how nobody would adopt him. And then I thought, well, you know, OK, that's, that's fine. But what's the story about? And I never outlined, but I do like to know what the story is about. And I thought, well, I think it would be fun if this guy, nobody wanted when he was a baby and nobody wanted him as he was growing up. He was in an orphanage till he was 18. Now he's 19. And every police agency in the country is after him. That would be fun. And, uh, and, but why are they after him? And I won't give the spoiler, but when it, when I, it only took about five minutes and, When I realized why they were after him, I laughed out loud. I thought, this is too good. I have to write this book. Uh, And I I really did like this character and the characters that, and again, it's another one of those stories in which people without a family come together to form one and an extended family and uh, under very trying circumstances. And uh, I keep getting asked if, This is a series, and it's not. But I wouldn't mind writing more about Quinn. But I feel a little daunted at my age starting a new series. I think I'm best staying standalone.
0: So let's look into the Staying on that point, I guess, let's look into the future. I know you mentioned uh, another book that you were really proud of. But what can readers look forward to over the next year or so from you?
1: Well, in July, uh, The Big Dark Sky comes out. It's a story with a pretty large cast. And it takes the subject of synchronicity and embeds it in the story. And it's not that strange. Everything happens by coincidence. The point of the book is that coincidence isn't coincidence. And uh, and that everything comes together in a way it does for to a purpose uh, that we may be blind to uh, in our own world. So how you show that is a real challenge. Uh, but the book has a considerable number of characters, but a lot of colorful ones that I particularly had fun writing about. And uh, then the next book after that, which I've delivered, is called The House at the End of the World. And it is one of the scarier things I've ever read and one of the darker things. But also, my a- agent said that uh, after reading at the end brought tears to my eyes. Well, good. Because after you've been through the darkness of all this, I hope that where it all ends up might be moving. Uh, and I'm working on a book now that I I have the title, but the publisher doesn't know it, hasn't approved it yet, so I'll keep it out. But it goes, the subject is, you're aware of what the singularity is. Everybody's assuming the singularity is near when human and computers, machines meld in a way. Right. that we can't fully understand in the U.S. or that the human lifespan is greatly extended and as Ray Kurzweil has said, human uh, intelligence may leap a hundredfold, a thousandfold, a millionfold. Uh, I read all this stuff and I think that's lovely, but it's basic nonsense. If things like that happen because of singularity, we're not even human anymore uh, and we might not like what we've become. So I came up with this idea about uh, this. It takes you a while in the book, a few chapters to understand or to learn who this guy is. But he sort of is the the, the singularity, except I had some deep thought about it. And thought, what would change if you took within you, uh, there was this experiment, and most everybody died, but not this guy. And why? And secondly, yes, it changes him. There, there is in every cell of his body now something that gives him interesting different ability, but it isn't anything anyone who's written about this really has thought about. And he still remains entirely new. Uh, he does not have hugely enhanced intelligence, uh, but what he can do is kind of interesting and it, uh, and it's limited. So he's no superhero. Uh, He's uh, he's a guy as vulnerable as anybody else, but he is clever. And the thing that he is able to do, it gives him some very small advantages that he turns into big ones. And I'm in the last 25 pages of the book. And uh, I think it's uh, I think it's one of the better things I've done. And that should be out in uh, July of next year.
0: Wow. So looking ahead, there always seems to be something awesome for people to, uh, to pick up from you, which is, is really quite incredible. And I'm obviously looking forward to all of these and I will be picking them up as should everybody listening to this. Sounds like some fantastic new work. So having achieved the immense level of success that you have for so, with so many years to perfect your craft, I really think that your opinion on this next question would be priceless. What one piece of advice can you offer to new and aspiring authors?
1: Yes, changes from time to time. But (laughs) uh, one thing I would say is uh, what has surprised me most throughout this long career is the resistance that I have received almost continuously. And even after we were at a point where we would sell half a million hardcovers and 2 million paperbacks in the first year of a new title. And then it will keep selling on backlist, on and on and on. At that point, I would think, yeah, if I come to you with a new book that's a little or or very different, I've done that before and it's always worked. And therefore, maybe we just relax. And if it doesn't work as well this time, I won't do that again. (laughs) I'll find some other different thing to do. And yet... The resistance never abated uh, until the new house I've gone to, where nobody says to me, well, that's different, or uh, they, they, they're, they're pleased by the difference. And that, I think, is why I've been revitalized, uh, why I'm more creative in the way they I think than I've ever been. And it's that little circle of people around saying, "Well, wow, that's cool. That's different. We like that. And not saying, there's a a thing called common wisdom. And in publishing, there is publishing common wisdom. The problem with common wisdom generally is none of it is wise. It's just common. It's what everybody thinks is true, but isn't necessarily the case. And I had so much time where uh, publishers and, and sometimes editors, I've had some good editors, and I've had a couple of good people in publishing, but they would say, Well, the readers want this or readers don't want that. And I began to realize that it's strange, but they don't really have a concept of who is out there buying books. Uh, They don't do a lot of research that way. Uh, And they take it upon themselves to think that what everybody wants to read is what people in New York City want to read. (laughs) And God bless them. I have a lot of readers in New York City But this is a huge country, and there are all kinds of people in it. And it's strange to me that that has been a problem I've dealt with. So I think the best thing you can do, you have to be polite. You have to be firm at the same time. And you have to love the thing you're writing. It has to be not what you think will sell and not what you scope the market to see selling. But what you're most passionate about writing at any one time, what looks to you like the thing that's going to be the most fun to write and the most meaningful to you to write, and that when you're done with it, you will be most likely to say, that was a good use of my time on earth. And if you do that, I guarantee you, you're going to meet resistance. And you just have to say, well, this is what I did. This is what I did. Let's see if the public likes it. It's good enough to publish so let's, uh, let's see how the res- what the result is. And stay true to your vision, because it's all you have to sell. If you're going to write what other people are writing. For a while, it was a lot of zombie novels. Uh, everybody seemed to be writing zombie novels. And that's the way the business goes. Something becomes popular, and publishers then want a lot of it. And they generally end up killing that kind of thing for a long time. When you get that kind of pressure, you've got to kind of resist it. You've got to stay with it. And it might mean for a long time your career is not what it ought to be. I was writing, from publishing from 1968 until 1980, until I had a paperback bestseller. And yet it was five years after that until I had a hardcover bestseller. Uh, you just have to stay with it and say, okay, I'm not – Getting that kind of enthusiasm, I want, but I'm I can make a living at it. And project by project, year by year, staying true to the vision, in my case was the thing that ultimately worked, and I think it's the thing that is most likely to work. But it's the hardest way to go.
0: Right, amazing advice. And
1: you know, to an extent, readers can generally get
0: a sense if the author is passionate about what they're writing about, if they're feeling it, if they're buying it. It's, you know, it's hard to buy something when you feel like the author doesn't buy
1: it themselves. Uh, One of the worst things that's happened in publishing is this phenomenon of a writer builds a name and then stops writing books and has co-writers. And uh, it's good for the co-writers, but it's not good for the industry because you're not, you're getting uh, book factory material. and. And that's exactly what you said. There is no passion. And, uh, and readers ultimately feel stung by that. They may go along with it for a while because they're they're caught by the brand. But there comes a time when they begin to realize this is hollow stuff and uh, not worth the time you spent to read it. So uh, it, it's sad, but it's part of the industry now.
0: I know. I've seen too much of it. But that's, that's excellent advice
1: that I think a lot
0: of people would really be able to benefit from listening to. Dean, where can people find you if they want to jump into your work and forever be distracted from real life?
1: <laughs> it's deanconce.com. Uh, Thomas and Mercer, which is Amazon, have uh, uh, updated the website beautifully. Uh, it's very easy to navigate now. It's got a lot of material in it. So that's a good place to start. And sign up for the newsletter we put out at month. So it'll come right into your computer and I've, a little bit of fun writing it don't uh, uh, and just follow along with us on social media. Awesome. Well, sir, it's been an
0: absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, one of the highlights of uh, my life, to be honest, is being <laughs> able to talk to you because like I said, I can't remember much of a time where I wasn't at least somewhat of a fan of your work. So, uh, and I, obviously I, we uh, at Authors in Focus wish you all the best with all your work everything upcoming and uh, all the best in general. Well, thank you. And,
1: and now all the parents out there who heard you say that, let your kids read me. See, uh, he hasn't ended up in an institution by reading me something that were your kids. Yeah, my mom did.
0: <laughs> thank you. Take care. Take care. This has been Authors in Focus. You can find my satirical fantasy novels on Amazon. Need help finding readers? Connect with me on Facebook in the Fantasy Sci-Fi Focus group or at AuthorsInFocus at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at Fantasy-Focus.com and where your favorite podcasts are hosted.